I want to speak tonight about effort and that quality of right effort which is really at the heart of what we are doing in this retreat. Finding that place or that balance which is right effort is a very delicate and subtle process. It's something that's constantly shifting and modifying. And even after years and years of practice, it remains something very delicate, an area of of watchfulness, of exploration. It is at the heart of what we are doing. I remember very well, fairly early in my meditative career, going up to Goenka, who was my first teacher. He was sitting up in front of the room, and I marched up one day, and I steeled myself to look him right in the eye, and I said, isn't there an easier way? As though somehow, I think I had the feeling that if I had only caught him off guard, I would force him to admit that actually He was being sadistic, and there was an easier way to be found somewhere, somehow. So I went up in just that manner, and he looked at me in response, and just very slightly shook his head, no, there's not. And what I sensed in that interaction on his part was a sense of timelessness, the timelessness of the Dhamma or the Dharma, the timelessness of the process. I had the feeling that he had been watching me going through my restlessness and sleepiness and knee pain, probably lifetime after lifetime. And what I was experiencing in that very day or that particular sitting was just part of an enormous process. The timelessness of the Dharma. As you know, the Buddha taught the middle way or the middle path. And it's considered the middle path between two extremes. The extreme of asceticism or self-mortification, the other extreme being that of overindulgence. Sometimes, I think, because of the way our minds have been conditioned, we hear that, that the Buddha taught the middle way between self-mortification and self-indulgence, And we kind of think, well, if I practice a little bit of self-mortification and a little bit of self-indulgence and kind of put them together in a pot, somehow I'll get the middle way. We tend to do that a fair amount. Actually, it's not like that. It's not the lowest common denominator between the two. But the middle way or the middle path signifies a completely different orientation or perspective on reality. It's like a level jump. 
It's an entirely different way of seeing, of looking. From that point of view, from that middle way, we can see how the Dharma could be timeless. Because it is not a question of finding one answer with which we can be comfortable and feel secure and keep with us throughout all of the different kinds of changes that we experience. It's not a question of finding something we can hold on to or become attached to in order to feel protected, in order to feel separate and apart from our lives. But rather, the middle way or the middle path is a, is a means or a method of continually renewing moment after moment our experience. It's a way of renewing our presence in the here and now. So it's not something we can get in one moment and then carry along with us as an acquisition or a trophy or a reward. But it's learning a way of being to be able to continually let go. It's a way of being with what is without the burden of comparison and judgment and expectation that we might easily fall into. The middle way is also considered the middle path or the middle way between two extreme views or opinions about reality. One extreme view, which we often feel, is that there is something solid or substantial or secure to be found somewhere in this world. Something to have or something to hold on to. And from this point of view, when we are caught in this point of view, then we grasp and we cling in a world of appearance and change, constant change. And so there's suffering. It's like chasing a mirage or a phantom. In this point of view, things matter a lot. Having and holding on seems to provide the illusion of perfect happiness, and so it matters a lot. The other extreme point of view is that nothing matters, that everything is void or chaotic or empty. And because of that, there's a kind of paralysis. Well, what difference does it make? We do things and it all changes anyway. Why bother? Why apply oneself in some way? The middle way between these two views is to understand that Things that happen in our world of experience, in the mind and body, and in the world around us, these things are fleeting, they are constantly changing, but they don't happen randomly. They don't happen haphazardly or chaotically. 
It happens according to certain laws. <laughs> What's governing this, I don't know, <laughs> but I'm sure it's functioning according to certain laws. <laughs> These are the laws of nature, how things happen in a natural way. A very simple example of this is the law of karma, which most basically put, can be understood in the sense of if you plant a certain kind of seed, you will reap a certain kind of fruit. If you plant an apple seed, then to weep and cry and complain about getting an orange doesn't make any sense. We can bring ourselves into harmony with these laws, live in harmony in this way. It's this middle path that is the perfect reflection of the spirit of right effort. To begin to understand right effort we align ourselves with a certain vision of the truth. Just as we wouldn't go into a room that has no light in it, that's dark, and start to clean up. In just that way we can understand how we pursue our meditation. First we turn on a light. First we bring ourselves into harmony with this law of cause and effect, or karma. To begin with, we do that in taking the refuges, which is how we began the retreat. We take refuge in the Buddha, not really as a historical figure or a certain personage, but we align ourselves with the idea of enlightenment or freedom and we align ourselves with the recognition of our own potential. When we do this, then we can begin to feel a kind of energy that is not stoppable, that cannot be compromised. Because we understand what an enormous potential we all have, and that we do not need to stop before that is realized. We align ourselves with the Dhamma, which is the moral and spiritual law, the laws of nature. In doing that, we can begin to feel a kind of energy that allows us to trust our own experience, that allows us to come back to a penetration of the truth on our own, for ourselves. We take refuge in the Sangha, which is aligning ourselves with a sense of connectedness with others, so that we can understand that we do not walk this path in isolation or withdrawal, but we do remain connected. When we practice right effort, then the truth becomes our own, rather than something interesting we can read about in a book 
or admire in another person's manifestation, it becomes our own. And we begin with the truth of our present moment's experience. It is this immediate truth that we're aiming for. The correct aim of our effort is just right now. It has a sense of immediacy. And the aim is very important, just as if we were going out and practicing archery. We wouldn't want to be shooting arrows off blindly without having a target. Our target or our aim is this very moment. It's right now and what is happening. We want to come close to our experience of the moment. Really touch it deeply. To experience this moment fully and with openness. This means dropping or letting go of our concepts and ideas and opinions of how things are. It means abandoning these things for a personal and intimate vision of the truth. To leave aside our concepts so that we can see actually the nature of things as things truly are. In that sense, it is important to understand that if there are concepts or ideas or theory that gets mentioned at any time during the retreat and you feel uncomfortable with it or you feel um, it doesn't reflect the truth of your own experience, then it's best to just not think about it. We're not here to try to adopt a dogma or a set of beliefs or a new conceptual framework, but we're here to try to use the environment to penetrate as deeply as possible with fullness and openness in each and every moment. There are many different ways of knowing and understanding the truth or reality. And the most powerful and most complete of these is that knowing which is based on our own experience. With, with a knowledge and an intuitive understanding that is based on our own experience, there is great power and great strength because we are unshakable, we are unwavering in understanding. So what we try to do with right effort is to surrender to what is in the sense of coming close to it, paying careful attention to it. Surrendering in this sense does not mean succumbing, does not mean lying down in front of our moment's experience and allowing it to run over us like a bulldozer. It means not resisting and not fighting so that we can come close to it, we can see it. Not trying to interfere with the way things are. What we're trying to do in the practice, in a fundamental sense, is see universal laws of nature and to understand them for ourselves. Because these are universal laws, 
any object can reveal them. There is no preferable object or experience that can more likely lead to this kind of intuitive opening than any other object. So it is not as though we disdain what is happening in the mind or the body at any given moment or select or choose or judge, but rather we try to use each and every experience to deepen that understanding of the universal laws which are being manifested through that moment. For example, the law of change. To penetrate deeply, to have a personal and powerful sense of the nature of change in our lives, we have to become very quiet and pay attention to how things are changing. It is not a question of pre-selecting certain experiences. Everything that we experience can reveal change to us until we have a more and more complete picture. A lot of the disillusionment and disappointment and frustration people feel sometimes in doing meditation practice is because this sense of right effort is not understood. No matter how many times somebody can hear, it doesn't matter what you're experiencing, just pay careful attention to it. Just be with it in a balanced way. You don't have to be seeing white light. It's not a bliss trip. All of those things, no matter how many times we hear it, somehow, somewhere within us, there's this sneaking suspicion that that's not true. That there really is something that should be happening other than what is happening right now. And there's something wrong with us and with our practice because we're here and not there, wherever there is. Whatever is supposed to be happening is not happening. It's a very needless frustration and pain there is so much pain anyway in the practice to compound it by bringing in our conditioned minds about ambition and our self-images is quite unnecessary. We can let go of that burden, really direct our attention to what is actually happening right now with a sense of acceptance and <coughs> surrender. However, right effort also means having a clear, continuous, and penetrating look at what is happening right now. It's not casual and it's not superficial. It may not be goal-oriented in the way that we normally use that word goal, in the sense that we're not looking for a special experience, but it does demand a totality and a fullness of awakeness in each moment. We have to be very awake and aware of what is going on. 
There's a story I hear, it's told in Burma or an anecdote, which says that sometimes the hunter goes into the forest to shoot a hare, a rabbit. But what's important is not so much whether or not the hunter is successful in shooting the hare. What is more important is that the hunter learns all the ways of the forest. What we're trying to do is learn all the ways of the forest, understand the nature of things within us and in our relationship to the world around us. To do that, we have to be very watchful and continuous and wide awake. And then we can understand. This is right effort. It's that quality of immediacy and totality and energetic awareness that we can bring to each moment. The effort that we put forth is a pragmatic effort. It's very practical. That's another thing that sometimes we find some difficulty with. In our Western, Western culture, I think a lot of times having an intellectual appreciation for a certain topic or a certain endeavor is often considered as satisfying or more satisfying than the practical application of that endeavor or that process. It's very gratifying. It's, it's, it can be great delight to have an intellectual appreciation or theoretical knowledge about something. It also can be fairly comfortable. There can be a sense of control. We think because we understand something intellectually, we're kind of on top of the situation. We can be in control. And yet it's not so. The effort that we put forth is very, very practical. It is extremely pragmatic. It has nothing to do with a theoretical or intellectual understanding of Buddhism or comparative religion or spirituality. It is an entirely different way of using the mind. An example is sometimes given of somebody who becomes stricken with malaria and goes to a doctor and gets a prescription for quinine. Now this person may take the prescription for quinine and run off to a medical library and start researching the history of quinine, its chemical composition, and all of the the other drugs that were experimented with before quinine was found to be able to treat malaria and all of the other kinds of new advents in medical science and so on and so on and so on. Perhaps this person will never remember to take the pill. There's another type of person who gets the prescription for the quinine, goes and takes the pill 
and then may go on to go to the medical library and read about the history and the chemical composition and so on. It is essential to take the pill. However much we might glorify that kind of knowledge or understanding, it is not the same as wisdom. To develop wisdom, we have to take the pill. And it's much harder. It's much more difficult. And yet it is, it is the true heart's release. It is our own freedom that we can experience by taking that pill. When I was sitting with Goenka for some time, I had a powerful evocation of this. I was sitting and experiencing a lot of tremendous physical pain. I often think, and I still claim, it's the worst pain that anyone has ever experienced ever in meditation. Although, actually, I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> it's some of the worst. And every third night of the retreat, which would run for a 10-day period, and the discourses would be repeated, every third night, Goenka would suggest that we sit for an hour. He wouldn't suggest, he would demand that we sit for an hour without moving, that we take a vow not to move. And every single time I moved, I hated the pain. I despised it. Also on the third night of the retreat, on the fourth night of the retreat, Goenka would give a discourse about the Buddha's teaching on dependent origination, which we'll go into in a lot more detail as this retreat progresses. But the essence of it is that we can find an entirely new way of relating to phenomena that all phenomena we experience, whether it's sights or sounds or sensations in the body or thoughts, images, every phenomena we experience can be classified as either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And our condition tendency is in that which is pleasant to try to cling or hold on. We get attached to that which is pleasant. We don't want it to change. We don't want it to go away. Our conditioned tendency with that which is unpleasant is to feel aversion or hatred or dislike or disgust towards it. We want to push it away or make it go away. And our conditioned tendency towards that which is neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, is to space out is to be deluded or unappreciative, not really carefully experiencing what is happening in that moment. And then he would go on to describe how if we open to the moment's experience, if we relate to it with presence of mind and equanimity, regardless of whether it was pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, Right in that moment, we can find freedom from our conditioning. And I would sit and hear his discourse, and I would think, 
Boy, that's so inspiring. That's just wonderful. That's really an incredible teaching. If only I could get rid of this knee pain, then I could really meditate. I can tell that I can really, I can really go far in this practice. If only I could get rid of this knee pain. And he would go on and he would be discussing not clinging and not feeling greed towards pleasant sensations and not feeling aversion or pushing away unpleasant sensations. And I would think, that's extraordinary. I mean, that's the most inspiring thing I've ever heard. If only I could get rid of this knee pain. It's really, you know, it's my major impediment. I know it. I could be enlightened any day. If only I could get rid of the knee pain. And he would go on and he would describe being present with equanimity and accepting things in the moment. And I would think, you know, I've been looking for this kind of truth all my life. It's so incredible to have finally found it. I think what I'll do is, I think I'll go to South India and I'll go to this yoga ashram that I know and I'll do a lot of yoga and I'll stretch out my body. And then I can come back and I can sit because I won't have any pain. And then I'll really go far in the practice. And he would go on and I would go on. And it was like this inner dialogue going on. It took me a very long time to realize that what he was talking about was what I was experiencing. That the teaching about having equanimity or paying attention to pleasant and unpleasant and neutral sensations and experiences was not abstract, it was not theoretical or speculative. It was directly pointing to each and every moment's experience. It was not something to be admired from afar or condemned from afar. It was something to be expressed in the practice, in each and every experience. And yet it is difficult to drop down to that level, to realize that it is the practical application of our mindfulness which is essential. Along with that, it's helpful to understand that right effort is a very simple effort. We are not trying to devise huge metaphysical systems. We are not engaging in philosophy. It is very simple, very practical. The Buddha used the example, he said that many of the situations or aspects of our lives that we cling to, that we are attached to, bring so much suffering to us that it is as though we were holding on in our hands to a red-hot burning coal. It's as though we were holding on a burning coal, holding on to a burning coal in the palm of our hands. Now what we need in that situation is really just a sensitivity to how it feels to be holding on to this object. Because with enough sensitivity and awareness to feel the pain of that holding on, it is not a great metaphysical issue about how we will let go. We do not get engaged in philosophical debates about do I let go suddenly or do I let go gradually? 
or do I let go one finger at a time, or do I throw the coal away, or do I throw it over my shoulder? You know, it is not like that. It is very simple. It's very direct. If we can develop that degree of sensitivity and awareness, that is all we need to do. And this is the process that we're engaged in. The effort that we put forth, as Michelle mentioned this morning, needs to be continuous effort. It is most helpful to divide our experience into the smallest units possible. Rather than walk into the hall with the resolve, I'm going to be mindful all day. I'm going to pay attention for the entire hour. Resolve to pay attention to this very breath, and this very breath, and this very breath. Break down the units of experience into the smallest possible components, now, and now, and now, to be mindful of just this breath, and then just this breath again, or just this step, or just this sensation, the smallest possible experience. And when the mind wanders, as it inevitably will, and you wake up in the middle of a fantasy, no matter how intricate, no matter how interesting, no matter how compelling or how horrible that fantasy is, just at the moment you become aware of it, make a brief note of thinking or fantasy or remembering or planning. Just make a brief note, let go of it, and begin again. This is the secret of doing meditation practice, is the ability to continually be beginning again. To let go fully of what is happening in the sense of a distraction, to be able to let go fully and return to the present moment. To be able to begin again as though it were for the very first moment. To be able to renew the attentiveness in this way. In this last retreat that we all sat, Upandita, who was teaching the retreat, was working with me, as those of you who are here know, <laughs> a lot on continuity demanding that I move very slowly and very continuously be mindful. Generally speaking, it took me about an hour to get from this hall, sometimes to the dining room. More often it took me an hour to get from the hall to the annex. So I was moving very slowly, as you can tell and trying to be as continuous as possible. I used to walk into his room for an interview, creeping along at that pace. I'd come in, bowed, as was the tradition. And somewhere in the process of getting ready to speak about my experience, I would make one unmindful move. And invariably, he caught it. 
even if it was one in a series of a thousand movements, he caught it. And he would look up and say, were you being mindful just then? And I'd say, no. <laughs> and we would go on from there. And in the beginning, it was so difficult for me. I decided at that point in the retreat that if I were ever to write a book about my experience, I was going to call it the torment of continuity. It was so painful. Each moment, trying to be present, not just in a formal sitting posture, but walking or walking from place to place or eating, trying to be that fully present. After a while, the kind of tormenting quality dropped away. What I used to say to myself was, if I was walking down a corridor, I would say to myself, walk as though your death were awaiting you at the end of this corridor. Make each step that full. Not, in, not death in the sense of reflecting on my feelings about it or um, you know, arousing anxiety or fear, but reflecting on my death awaiting at the end of that corridor to bring that kind of totality and immediacy. Because within that context or that vision of things, my cares and my concerns and my anxieties and my plans for what to do after I ate lunch and all of those things just fell away. There was nothing to think about anymore. Just each and every step with that much fullness. And so I walked and so I ate as though my death were awaiting me at the end of that meal. So that each movement of my arm each taste of the food was an entire world in itself, not existing only in relationship to what might come next, but an experience in itself that I tried very hard to pay attention to. The more I did that, the more the torment dropped away, and I had more of a sense of the classical image, which is that of a bucket which is being filled drop by drop with water. I didn't have to pay attention to anything beyond this drop, just one drop at a time, one moment at a time. This kind of effort is an impeccable effort. It's impeccable because it reflects sincerity. It reflects complete sincerity. To understand, to truly understand our lives is the most extraordinary thing we can do. And so it's a powerful process. And yet it's one's own. Sometimes people say that meditation is a matter of life and death. And it is. But it's a matter of one's own life and death. We don't practice to try to express an image of a perfect yogi or to please someone else or to fit into some authority structure. We practice for our own understanding and with a sincerity, a deep sincerity that we can bring to our effort, then it is like a flame that just 
burns up things that stand in our way. It just burns up obstacles. We can keep moving. The effort that we make most fundamentally has to be a balanced effort. The image that's usually used in this regard is that of tuning some kind of stringed instrument. If we take a guitar and we tune we tighten a string too much, it's not going to make the right sound. On the other hand, if we leave it too loose or too lax, it's also not going to make the right sound. To find that balance, because we can't hurry along the truth or the Dharma, it's going to move at its own natural pace. We can't control things or produce results or produce enlightenment. What we can do is offer a sincere effort that is within our control, that is something that we can do. It's like growing a garden. We can nurture it and protect it and care for it in the ways it needs to be cared for, but we can't hurry it along. We can't make it grow any faster than it's actually growing. So in just that way, to make a sincere effort to be mindful from moment to moment. And when there are gaps or interruptions, then to begin again. This is a balanced effort because it is not straining, and it is not tense, and it is not overreaching this very moment. Ideally, the effort that we make is a wholehearted effort without holding anything back. As we all know from varied experiences in our lives, the more we give or the more we put into a situation, the more we'll get out of it. And that that is the real criteria. To do the practice fully with everything, every resource that is available to us, because it is an extraordinary opportunity and we shouldn't treat it lightly for our own sakes. To do it as fully as possible in the sense that Krishnamurti said, freedom is now or never. The freedom to see the truth of each and every moment we have right now. And so to take full advantage of that, not being complacent or putting things off, but right now, in each and every moment. The effort that we make is also an effort that is connected to wisdom, to understanding. Again, it is not an effort to have something happening that is not happening right now, but it is an effort to eradicate ignorance. If we use the example of a tree, and see that the roots of the tree may be called ignorance. And then we have the trunk and the bark and the branches and the leaves and the fruit. 
all of which reflect different aspects of our experience that is suffering. We can go about dealing with the tree by first starting with picking the fruit and tossing it away and picking, up, picking off all the leaves and chopping off little twigs and then getting onto the branches and then starting to peel away the bark and getting, you know, getting to the heart of the tree and then finally coming down to the roots. Or we can work immediately towards uprooting the tree, uprooting the ignorance or the not understanding or the confusion which underlies that whole structure. And that is what we do by developing more and more awareness in each moment. We are very fortunate people in that we can have a sense of freedom that is quite expansive and ultimate. Many people's lives are burdened in such a way that the entire scope of what they might define as freedom is very limited. They can only envision freedom as an ability to have a few more choices in life or have a little bit more control There's a lot of suffering in that kind of situation where there are so many burdens and so much difficulty in someone's life that just to be able to move from here to there or sit where you want to sit in a bus, where that becomes the final definition of what is seen as freedom. There's a lot of sorrow in that. We are very fortunate not to be in that kind of position where we can envision freedom in an ultimate sense of deeply understanding, not being bound to change, that kind of level of freedom. And so it is important to direct our effort towards that end, not to waste energy or waste time. In part of doing that, in terms of this retreat, we ask you to please try to follow the instruction just as it's being given. Many of you have a lot of experience in other practices. Some of you are very adept and quite accomplished in other practices, even practices that are almost identical to the instruction that's being given here. And yet, for us to be able to help you as best we can, it is least confusing if you can just try to follow the instruction just as it's being given in the sequence that it's being given. For example, right now, in paying attention to either the rise and fall of the abdomen or the sensation of the breath at the nostrils, We've asked that if something else arises, you make a brief notation of it and then return to the primary object. 
that kind of thing, even though you may have done this practice in slightly different ways, to kind of move along with us, to use the notations, all of that, which will help increase and then balance the effort. The last element of right effort that I wanted to speak about is that of persistence. It is so easy to put forth bursts of energy and then kind of just relax and gaze about and go, go to sleep for a while to kind of gear up, try to gear up for the next burst of energy. It is more helpful to be persistent, to be even in the application of energy in that way. There's something very interesting about this tradition, I find, in that there's so much emphasis on one's own effort, on the idea that no one else can save you, that others perhaps can point the way, but that each and every individual has to put forth their own effort. I think it has two aspects to it. It's like a double-edged sword. Because in feeling that kind of personal responsibility for one's own state of being, one's own condition, there's a lot of empowerment that comes with that. There's a sense of not having to follow without questioning other people, not just kind of going along with somebody with what somebody else says. But there's an empowering, a turning inward, and trusting one's own experience, learning to trust one's own experience of the truth, because it is all based on what each person sees for themselves through their effort. The other edge, or the other side, is that we each have to be responsible for doing it. If there is no one who can do it for us, then to read about it or think about it or feel devotional towards it, towards that process of really looking, is not going to do much good. And so the uh, perhaps less comfortable aspect to that idea is that each person needs to feel personally responsible for their own state of being. And each person needs to engender as much effort and energy as possible. When effort is right effort in this sense, it's not straining, and it's not tense, but rather continuous and careful watching of each moment, then there's a transformation that takes place. It's like the energy or the effort picks up its own momentum and just starts to carry you. In watching any person performing an activity, 
say, an athlete running or a great musician playing a musical instrument. You know how sometimes from the outside you can look at them and start thinking, boy, it looks so simple. You and I could do that. Anybody could do that. But really that gracefulness and that appearance of ease and harmony, generally speaking, comes from a careful and continuous application of effort. Somebody practices and practices and practices and practices, and at some point it all comes together. Things are in harmony. In just that way, we can experience our practice, our meditation practice. Bring the attention back, and we bring the attention back, and we bring the attention back to the primary object, whether in sitting or in walking, eating or whatever. And after a while, what happens is that it all comes together. And there is a sense of ease and relaxation and harmony. Well, I think I won't take any questions tonight, and we can just begin the walking. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.